When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the sound of preparations for battle. It's the frozen conflict that suddenly heated up to boiling point, the standoff between Russia and Ukraine. Russia's President Vladimir Putin is sending the might of his army to the border with a neighbor seeking its own path three decades after independence. Troops are on maneuvers, shuttle diplomacy aims to find a way out of the crisis, and the world is holding its breath. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, will there be war or peace in Ukraine? Ukraina literally means the borderlands and the country's size and location at the eastern edge of Europe and the western one of the former USSR has made its history an often tragic one. I reported from Russia and Ukraine throughout the 1990s when hopes of a new era of independence in Kiev and detente with post-communist Moscow ran high. But that dream has soured into discord with Russia over how free a country of 44 million is to seek its own security and economic alliances. It's also drawn NATO into the fray, delivering weapons and support to the government in Kiev. So what happens next and how should the West respond? In this special episode, I'll be talking to economist journalists, analysing events and taking a longer view of the independence movement. But my first guest is Alexander Daniluk, who was Ukraine's finance minister and in 2019, its national security chief, roles that meant untangling the motives and motivations of Vladimir Putin. So how does he see the current situation? Alexander Daniluk, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you for having me. Can you give us a sense of what it feels like to be in Ukraine at the moment? You've got one of the world's biggest armies on your doorstep, the drums of war beating in the background. How is the mood around you? Well, Ukraine is the age of war. You know, it's actually a very strange feeling when you understand that everything could change within a moment. And the peaceful life would disappear. And what I can tell is that every day I see less and less cars on the street. I see less and less people. So clearly, people are making their mind. Some thinking about potentially moving families, you know, safer place. Others they think about how they can help the situation. They enroll in the territorial defense. So, country is preparing for the war whatever the rhetorics is around. And what we also see is that there is this constant raising of stakes by Russia, by United States, by NATO allies. So all parties are raising the stakes. And this is also creates a very dangerous situation. It is true that the stakes have been rising as you describe there. But do you think that Russia is 
really ready to go to war because it has been a case of mixed signals, hasn't it? Uh, Vladimir Putin is keeping the world guessing what his intentions are. President Zelensky in Ukraine seemed to emphasise most recently that he thought this was more or less a form of psychological warfare, which is is brutal, but uh, perhaps better than anything more like the real thing. Are you convinced that Russia is prepared to invade Ukraine? I can tell you that no one is convinced. I believe that even Putin hasn't made his mind until this moment. But it doesn't mean that we, you know, we need to just observe and say, oh, okay, it's all hypothetical. You know, it all be- could become very, very real because we have a real army on our borders. We have a power struggle with very high stakes. And for Putin, that could end up either in aggression or he will retreat for aggression. He understands he will have a very serious consequences. The result is unknown to him, unpredictable. So it's a very high cost gamble. And for retreat, he also has a very good excuse because he needs to save his face. It could become real even because of diplomatic mistakes in this heated negotiation between the West and and Russia. A single mistake, serious mistake, could lead to the war. And what about the assessment which we wrote about in The Economist? It's not only in The Economist that this has been raised, that the plan could really be to annex eastern tracts of Ukraine, seizing some of the, the big cities there, Kharkiv, Donetsk, for example. That would be a sort of semi-state of, of war, but it would be seen, I suppose, or presented by the Kremlin as a limited conflict zone. What do you make of that? I don't believe in... Uh small incursions and uh, and small uh, wins for for Russia, that will be an aggression anyway. And so Russia would get the full set of sanctions and would make it quite costly. At the same time to Russia, it will not be a big trophy. So unfortunately, and very unfortunately, I think the the real risk is a large-scale aggression. And in this case, it's ironically, I would say, is that the larger aggression Putin could launch, I think the softer there will be reaction from the West. Because the West will not be thinking about sanctions in this time, but would be thinking about how to stop Russia. And you don't stop it with sanctions. Whichever way you look at it, Alexander, it's certainly true that there is a lot of military superiority in terms of, of numbers, of investment over recent years on the Russian side. And I'm not really sure... If it were to come to a conflict, what kind of war we're looking at here? The fact that you're getting anti-tank defensive weapons sent by allies to Ukraine. How does that measure against the fact that this could be largely drone warfare? Clearly, Russia has superiority in several spheres, including aviation, missiles, drones as well. And Russia may choose, actually, the approach to use this type of weapons to destroy our infrastructure, to kind of inflict the maximum damages and maybe cause some you know, instability in the country by doing this with very little cost to themselves. And I think for this, there is an answer is we need to get the proper arms as soon as possible. There is a gap opening up between the way in which Ukraine and Western countries are drawing the possibilities of of war and what the possible response should be. Help me out here because obviously you know you know the security situation very well and, and also from your time around government in Ukraine. When the Pentagon says that there is intelligence that Russia 
is actively preparing for conflict and to take serious casualties, including sending blood supplies to the border as an indication of, of readiness for fighting. Ukraine's deputy defence minister then rejected that intelligence. So are we here in a world where we're not really sure where we're getting an intelligence narrative or something that is a fact on the ground? Ukraine relies on intelligence that we get from our uh, international partners heavily relies on this intelligence. These statements, it doesn't tell that Ukraine has a different intelligence. No, these statements are purely political. Zelensky is looking how to position himself on a stage. And this stage is currently occupied by, by Biden, by Putin, Johnson, Macron. So he initially was thinking, okay, what should I do? So first he was like ignoring the fact that Russia is assembling troops in our border since November. And we've heard about this from international media. And there was no official position of the president and his office for three weeks. Recently, he just calming situation. He said like, oh, nothing is happening. But I think this is a big mistake. He needs to recognize that the war is imminent. He needs to mobilize society, and that's what people are demanding from him. They don't want a president to sing lullabies. I wondered what you think that people in the West get wrong about Ukraine in terms of its relationship with Russia and the argument around the Russian sphere of influence, which for some people sounds like an acceptable price to pay for a part of the world which we know can very easily become fragmented, fractious, dangerous. Although I'm half Russian, actually, I never accept that Ukraine is in the sphere of influence of Russia. No, we're a large independent state. This is our life. We want to decide for ourselves what we want to do in our country. What Russia is trying to do now is they're talking to the United States, NATO, like Ukraine doesn't exist. And actually, this is a big mistake that West does not actually include Ukraine in these discussions, only talking about this. But in reality, it's not happening because you just cannot ignore such a large country. Well, I mean, let, let me try a, a bit of a counterpoint to that, which is, and you won't like this very much, I should say, but I should ask the question, given that it seems very unlikely that Ukraine would be admitted into NATO for anything like the foreseeable future, why not simply say Ukraine will not bid to join NATO and that that at least would be an answering bid to the Russian demand without it materially affecting Ukraine? The power games doesn't work like this. By doing this, West will show weakness. And then suddenly Russia will move their red line slightly more to the West. And I think this is a mistake that Putin made. He put his demand he thought that the West is soft. He thought that it's preoccupied with own problems, United States, you know, other countries. It is true. There are many domestic problems. But at the same time, Biden cannot afford to show weakness. And similar situation with other European leaders. Putin, by putting this ultimatum, now he gets a very strong pushback. There will be no compromises there, concessions. I don't believe in this. In some ways, you sound stronger in what you avow the West's position to be than uh, some Western leaders and the NATO general secretary himself. I mean, Jens Stoltenberg has talked about a balanced approach. He's talked about a political solution to de-escalate tensions. He hasn't only said this is the moment of show or tell and we must remain strong. You've also seen Germany, very powerful, strategically vital in Europe, rather peeling away 
way. So I wonder whether NATO and the Western Allies' will is as concrete as you suggest. Well, I cannot guarantee this. I wish they were. But uh, what I can say at the moment is that Ukraine should be prepared for the war. Whatever could be done needs to be done. And then really all these negotiations, they're very important. But in this case, when country is ready, West understand this, Putin understand this, they will not be able to discuss anything without our participation because our word would matter as the last one. But let me press you on the NATO point. Do you accept that there is vanishingly little chance of Ukraine joining NATO? Yeah, I think it's not the immediate perspective, right? I agree with you. But it's also a matter of principle as well. If NATO will give up, despite the position in Ukraine, then uh, there is no NATO. There is no NATO. Because NATO is about collective defense. There are countries that need this defense. Ukraine is not a member. That would be true of the Baltic states. It would be true of Poland. Can I ask you whether Poland was part of NATO 20 years ago? They had to be there because they needed this uh, protection. So why do you think Ukraine is different? Personally, I don't. But it is it is a view that a that lot of people have that it is not realistically on the table in the way that it was for Poland. And I'm just looking at the facts on the ground. I hear, I just don't want even to argue because I agree with you. It's like, it's, it's not that realistic. But as I said, it's a matter of principle. And that's why for me, priority is to building our potential to fight with Russia. Uh, because we're spending uh, more than 6% of our GDP for defense and security, while NATO countries is spending less than 2%. It's expensive for us. It's extremely expensive. But we understand it's a matter of survival. Last thought from you, and of course it's going to be the big one. What do you think will happen next? I think the next move is from Russia. It's up to them what will be the next step. And for the next couple of weeks, we will be engaged in the diplomatic discussions, different type of rhetorics. And hopefully within this, maybe Putin will find some excuse to retrieve. That's what I hope. If it doesn't go smoothly, I think there is a risk of large-scale war somewhere at the end of February, beginning of March. Alexander Daniluk, thank you very much indeed for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you very much for having me. Alexander Daniluk ended our conversation with his prediction that war could come by spring. So to find out what the consequences of conflict could be, not just for the region, but the wider world, I called up two of my colleagues watching the situation closely to get their insights on Russia's roulette. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defence editor and Arkady Ostrovsky is our Russia editor, currently in Kiev. Hello to you both. Hi, Anne. Very nice to be joining you again. Thanks, Anne. Great to be on the show. Arkady, what do you think Vladimir Putin fears most from an independent Ukraine? And you're on the ground there at the moment. How does that feel? Well, I think in the long run, he fears a successful democratic Ukraine that is part of the Western project, because that's a direct affront to a model of authoritarian, neo-imperialist rule that Putin has imposed on Russia. Ukraine does carry a message, not just to Russia, but the whole of the former Soviet space. And, and in a way, the battle here is not just a battle for Ukraine, it's, it's the battle for the post-imperial Russia. And Shashank, tell us what you make of the mixed signals. We've heard Vladimir Putin massing those troops, as we know, on 
the border. We have some figures like Alexander Danilov talking to us saying, yes, he still thinks that the, the drums of war are beating. At the same time, the Kremlin says it has no plans for invasion. And even Mr. Putin, who is hardly a dove, is talking up diplomatic solutions. So to put you on the spot, is this the path to peace or war? And I think we're in a strange position where both Russia and the West have reasons to eke this out. The West, because it desperately hopes for some kind of diplomatic off-ramp, and we're seeing phone calls from Mario Draghi, Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron, visits from Viktor Orban of Hungary, all beating a path to Mr Putin's door. But Russia's incentive, I'm afraid, is to build up forces. They're still pouring in from all corners of Russia into Belarus and into Western Russia. I think he's putting those forces into place. And my worry is that diplomacy is just buying time for that to happen. I fear we're now more on the path to conflict, that it could well come later this month and that it could well be on a larger scale than many people at this stage realise. I have a slightly different perspective, I suppose, from Shashank. I don't think that war is inevitable. I think it's definitely possible. Now, step back a second. I'm in Kyiv. The atmosphere here is incredibly calm. People are very composed. And I've talked over the past few days to very, very different parts of the political spectrum. And of course, Ukraine, as you know, Anne, is, it might not be the most functioning democracy, but it's a very pluralistic country. And what I hear again and again is that the Ukrainians both on the government side and on the opposition side. We've just talked to Petro Poroshenko, Zelensky's opponent, former president. They all say, we think the war is less likely than not. We put the chances of war at about 30%. And of course, Poroshenko has dealt with Putin for years, and he has no reason to be sort of appeasing him. And exactly the same sort of reaction you get in Moscow from Putin's critics, who say, we don't think he is going to go for it. And the reason for that is the cost. A war in Ukraine would be disastrous, not just for Ukraine and and Europe. It would be actually totally disastrous for Russia and Vladimir Putin himself. And and Shashank, bearing in mind what Arkady says and that slightly different perspective that you both bring to it, why might the Kremlin be waiting? I think there's another reason, which is not just logistical and military, but is also diplomatic. Of course, the Winter Olympic Games are about to begin. China is an important partner of Russia. And in the aftermath of any crisis or conflict, China would become considerably more important to Russia for mitigating the fallout of sanctions and for diplomatic succour. So take all that into account and you can see why Russia might wish to avoid torpedoing Xi Jinping's signature achievement and starting a war before the Olympic Games finish towards the end of this month. Arkady, you you know Ukraine very well and, of course, you spent a lot of your life in Russia. Do you get much sense of how Russian people are feeling about this, notwithstanding the constraints, obviously, on on mass media under Putin? But we talk about it as if it's simply Putin's decision to make, but do we know how popular or otherwise a war with Ukraine would be? Yes, it is Putin's decision to make. But like any autocrat, Putin's actually very sensitive to what people want. And he has to stay in the Kremlin past 2024. Now, in terms of the mood of the people, I would say the prevalent mood is fear. People are scared of war. This old Russian mantra, which stems from the Second World War, 
only anything but war is very strong. People don't want a war. There is no mobilization. That's why, by the way, Russian propaganda is actually quite careful in beating the drums of war because they know people don't want to hear it. That said, you know, if Putin does do it, you know, Russia is a repressive state. I don't think we'll see mass demonstrations. But will this help Putin's popularity? I very much doubt that. And Shashank, following up on that fact that there's a diplomatic track, but there's also a kind of shuffling of Western leaders into Kiev offering military support to Ukraine. What are the pros and cons, as you see them, of this external input? In military terms particularly, they're receiving quite a lot of things. Thousands of anti-tank weapons from the Brits. The Poles have said they'll send surface-to-air missiles. The Baltic states are sending Stinger missiles, which, of course, are particularly evocative. The famous Stinger missiles, which did such damage to the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, supplied by the CIA. And the pros are, of course, that it dissuades Russia by affirming all the things that Arkady mentioned, the sheer costs and risks of an invasion, particularly if it turns into a protracted occupation. The cons, and I think probably less thought's been given to these, is that if you start sending huge amounts of arms to Ukraine now, it might also precipitate a decision in the Kremlin to say, hang on a minute, this proves our point. If we don't do something about this fascist regime in Kiev now, then it's only going to get worse. I might have a question for Shashank, which is this. In this sort of day and age of, of warfare, how big are the risks of something really incidental happening. I think it's it's a great point because you've got the biggest military build-up here that Europe has seen in 40 years. Not only that, but you've got American spy planes flying intensive surveillance flights over Ukrainian territory. You've got warships in the Black Sea. This presents obvious risks. I think the good news is that both sides are very, very aware of the sensitivities of all of this. My bigger worry than accidental war at this stage really still remains a deliberate choice to order forces in. But I think with this much kit moving around, with this many planes flying around, that is absolutely something to be mindful of. And I would add to that that, of course, Putin's objective is to destabilize Ukraine. Let's say one of the scenarios, he tricks Ukrainian leadership into some sort of a peace deal, which they can't sell at home. But Zelensky's popularity has been falling. Now, if he does make a wrong step in his negotiations with Russia, There will be discontent. There will be massive protest in Ukraine. How Russia uses that turmoil, how it drives in, we know that Putin's favorite technique is you use, you exploit the weaknesses that are already there. You don't necessarily create them. Very clever, decoy things, play a nice cop to some Ukrainians, get them to agree something they can't sell, I think is one of the possibilities. Let's look at that divide and and rule tactic that the the Kremlin is well known for and and how it's playing out more broadly. Shashank, we know that NATO is keen to have a unified position, but it's already in one sense lost the full support uh, of Germany, which is not joining in on the export of defensive weapons and is striking an altogether more havering and cautious tone. So could you say that even if nothing does happen militarily, Putin has advanced division in the West. I think Germany's had a very bad crisis. No one would dispute that. 
What I would say is, though, I'm a bit more optimistic on NATO as a whole. By and large, it is held together. We've seen a lot of assertive steps, even by France, which has generally sort of tried to take a more independent position on these things. But France has said it would consider a new military mission in Romania. That's, you know, very, very good news for NATO, I'd say. You've just seen the NATO response force put on high alert in America, allocate thousands of troops which it's now sending to Eastern Europe even before anything has happened. Britain has said it will reinforce forces in Eastern Europe. So on the whole, Anne, I resist the narrative of a disunited, irresolute West. We have had divisions. There are EU-NATO divisions. But overall, I think NATO has hung together reasonably well, and I fully anticipate it would be energised in just the same way it was after 2014 if Russia does anything silly. I think NATO's unity and resolve are probably the most important part of this. Russia went into war with Georgia in 2008 after NATO Bucharest summit, which didn't quite have the guts to offer Georgia and Ukraine membership action plan. When Putin feels this dithering, when Putin feels divisions, he sees this as a green light. Again, just talking to Petro Poroshenko a few minutes ago, he said, if you really want to deter Russia, offer Ukraine membership action plan now. Well, I mean, that's so interesting that, that you say that, because that was actually what we were discussing with Mr. Danny. Look, and I was pushing him hard at the end, saying, whatever one thinks should happen, it's very unlikely to see NATO membership fallout or partnership membership offered in the years ahead. But Arkady, it sounds like you might disagree with me. I think you have to close the gap between the values of NATO and the public statement NATO makes and the private comments that member countries make in conversations to Putin. Because when Vladimir Putin hears big statements from NATO that any country is free to choose its alliances and that NATO will not accept any ultimatum from Russia. And then he hears from diplomats in NATO member countries saying, don't worry, we don't really mean this. That's what Putin sees as hypocrisy. That's what he sees as weakness. Either you have to stop making those statements or you have to say, and we are actually going to make steps to defend Ukraine, and we are going to offer membership action plan. But it's the ambiguity which is the worst of all. It's creating that grey zone, which I think is very high risk. What I'd add to this is also that the question of how far NATO should expand and how it should sort of fill the gap between its vague promises of maybe you can join one day and the reality of, oh my goodness, you've got a war with Russia on your eastern flank, you're not going to join anytime soon, is not just a Ukraine question. You're going to have a lot of people in not just the Balkans, Bosnia, Herzegovina, other countries, but also really important for Europe, Finland and Sweden. Two countries that are not members of NATO, that have active debates over how far they should move towards membership, watching all of this with great interest. Because if there is an attack, both of those countries are going to very much want to firm up their ability to join, not necessarily doing it, but certainly flirting with the alliance more closely. And there's going to be a lot of people in Europe who say, having just had one crisis with Ukraine about potential halfway house membership, we really have to be cautious on Finland and Sweden. Can I turn to sanctions, US and European countries preparing a sweep of economic and financial sanctions to impose on Russia additional ones to the existing ones if it invades Ukraine? The theory there is you target figures and companies close to Putin's inner circle. Will it work? Is it the right 
uh, response and do you see it hitting the people that you would need to hit in order to have any impact on this particular crisis? In case of a war, there would be very severe sanctions, not just personal ones against Putin's circle, but against Russia's financial sector. Russia is very integrated into the world economy. Yes, since 2014, Russia has beefed up its its reserves. Its economy is, of course, not growing. I mean, it's this fortress economy. Yes, it may withstand sort of short pressure, but I think sort of making it in the long term is going to be very, very hard. I think there is another point is this for Russian elite, which has got very used to the idea of living between Russia and the West and using the West, not just as a shopping ground. I mean, there is much more serious point here, which is the West has been the main mechanism of transfer of inheritance within the elite because the property rights are so weak. It's the ability to spend, to make your money or loot your money in Russia, park them in the West, spend them there, make routes. All that will go out of the window. There is absolutely no chance that Russian elite will be able to make any sort of living in the West. And I think that's a very, very serious point. Devil's advocate here, Shashanka, I, like you, have have covered the earlier rounds of sanctions. I got the impression that some people affected were concerned about it. I also got the impression that it was actually quite hard to track down unexplained wealth. So what makes us think that in this particular case where you need something very targeted in order to do the job, as opposed to just to clean up dirty money flowing around London and other cities, may be a good thing in itself, but it wouldn't necessarily help advance a position on the conflict in Ukraine. I think there's a real sense that after 2014, the UK government failed to take the serious steps that were necessary. But what I would say is that if you want to really squeeze Russia, you also have to use the energy weapons. You also have to go after gas and and, and energy and use those sanctions. Whether Europe is prepared to do so in a serious way, just as it goes into a major energy crisis through winter, uh, with lots of individual countries like Austria, Slovakia, others who would be vulnerable to Russia turning off the taps, that is an open question. My own intuition is that given the scale of what we face, if an attack occurs, that we might be surprised by how far Europe will go this time, however much people may have been disappointed in the past. What are the implications for the wider world of what is happening here? And does that simply depend, peace or war, or has something changed fundamentally because we have come to the brink of a conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which 30 years ago at the dissolution of the Soviet Union, beginnings of independence for former Soviet satellites, we thought, well, that's that, you know, that's that bit of of history done. How do you look at it now? What I think it would mean would be profound instability on its eastern front, not just chaos and destruction in Ukraine, but also, for example, what happens to neighbouring countries. Ukraine neighbours Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania. All of those countries could become bases for arms supplies to an anti-Russian insurgency. And we have seen from other war zones the instability that can cause. Globally, there's lots of implications, economic, diplomatic, the future of the Russia-China relationship. But the one I'd really pick out and perhaps leave us to reflect on is the question of America's grand strategy in the world. American officials have spent years desperately trying to refocus their efforts on the Indo-Pacific, on on China. Now President Biden has been forced to send thousands of troops back to Europe. That isn't what he wanted to do. It isn't what his advisers wanted to do. 
will this bend American strategy out of shape? Or is it finally a moment at which Europeans realise the Americans are no longer going to show up all the time and this time they really have to step up? There is a different perspective, if you like. You mentioned 30-year anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union, which Putin thinks was an iteration of the Russian Empire. I think what we're seeing is actually is a tectonic historic shift. I think we are seeing the terminal phase of that empire collapsing. We were only sort of halfway there in 1991, and now we see the actual final stages Putin's made his whole political career staked it on the idea of Russia's imperial nationalism, that Russia is the modern iteration of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union was an iteration of the Russian Empire. And that's what's going now. This is what what the stakes are. And when big empires start collapsing, hold on to your seats. Arkady and Shashank, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you very much for having us on, Anne. Thanks very much. It was great to be on the show. Whatever the outcome, it's already clear to me that this dispute is one which will have a lasting effect on the fate of Vladimir Putin and the West's view of where our security commitments in Europe begin or end. But it's also a human story of hopes, disappointments and reversals of fortune. Many of the big stories we cover at The Economist leave a mark on our correspondence witnessing events with a resonance far beyond a particular assignment. In 2004, my colleague Andrew Miller, now our culture editor, was in Ukraine covering the Orange Revolution, unleashed by protests over corruption and meddling in elections in favour of candidates and business interests backed by Moscow. It was the first skirmish in Ukraine's battle to make independence a durable reality. Andrew's personal experience of the opposition movement and the pressures on it inspired a novel, Independence Square is set in the maelstrom of events during the Orange Revolution, and it probes the moral and practical complexities of the country's position on the edge of Europe and its proximity to Russia. It's humbling for a foreign correspondent from a country like Britain to see up close the dangers and the sacrifices that people will endure to to win the rights and freedoms that many of us in the West tend to take for granted. And for me, one of those enlightening and ultimately heart-wrenching places was Ukraine. It's a place I visited many times in the noughties when I was based in Moscow as a foreign correspondent for The Economist, in particular in the winter of 2004 to cover a drama that became known as the Orange Revolution, an episode which, I think in retrospect, was part of a sequence of events that stretched back to the collapse of the Soviet Union and beyond, and forward to today, a long and ongoing struggle to escape the grip of the Kremlin and to live free from corruption and by the rule of law. It was an electric and exhilarating winter, which years later I revisited in a novel I wrote called Independent Square. Hundreds of thousands of people stood in the freezing streets of Kiev to protest against a rigged election. You probably remember it. It was a contest between a thuggish candidate who was backed by the Ukrainian government and by Vladimir Putin and an opposition leader who pledged to turn his country towards the West and end corruption and was poisoned and disfigured during the campaign. But the impressions that now stick with me most were not made by 
the politicians who made speeches on the stage that was set up in Independent Square in Kiev. Rather, they were the risks that ordinary people were willing to run. I think in particular of the line of young women who marched up to the serried ranks of riot police and slipped roses into their rifles, and of the heroic sign language interpreter on the evening news who, in the middle of a broadcast on state-run TV, said that the official election results were all lies and that her viewers shouldn't believe them. In my writing, I tried to capture the euphoria and, and the vertigo of revolution, the swirling rumours and the heroism and skullduggery that take place in the shadows. The plot turns on the question that haunts all big street protests, from Caracas to Hong Kong then and now, namely, is there going to be violence? In this case, the, the skull cracking was narrowly averted, but the revolution turned out to be a, a happy story with a sad ending. As is often the case in real life, alas, the good guys turned out to be a bit less good than they seemed, and the bad guys, well, they didn't go away, and in particular, Vladimir Putin wouldn't leave Ukraine alone. But at the same time, the desire for freedom that had been fanned by that upheaval didn't go away either, then whirled up again in another revolution in 2013 to 14. And this time, the rumours of violence were sadly realised and over 100 people were killed in and around Independence Square. After that came the annexation of Crimea and a rumbling war in eastern Ukraine, and now, today, our current crisis. And I'm struck by the weight of these moments when an entire country seems to be balanced like a ping-pong ball on top of a jet of water, when the really big questions, who shall rule, is it going to be freedom or repression, are all suddenly up for grabs. And in the end, these aren't just questions for presidents and diplomats and generals, but for ordinary people, ordinary citizens, people who, beneath the headlines of history and the stuff we see on the evening news, are called upon to decide, in a hurry, what kind of person they want to be and what kind of country they want to live in and what price they're willing to pay. And in the end, for me, the history of Ukraine is a story of hopes being thwarted and of hopes enduring. And it's also, I think just as urgently, a story about we in the West as well. One of the main characters in my novel is a, a fictional oligarch called Misha Kovrin, who is an invented member of a small class of people who then wielded immense power over Ukraine and still do, and in fact increasingly play a part in Western politics as well. And in the book, Misha says of Ukraine that it's a sign to the future. And I think he's right, because the interference by the Kremlin in that country, the meddling with elections, the smears and dark money that course across borders and around the world, all these turned out to be our problems as well. So Ukraine, in the end, is not just a faraway country of which many of us may know little. It's part of a struggle in which we in the West are all combatants as well. A fundamental battle between facts and fakery, between democracy and the spread of authoritarianism, between the rule of law and corruption, and between idealism and cynicism, the idealism of the people willing to stand in freezing streets for a better future, and the cynicism, alas, of some of their rulers. And I think back to the people who I met in Kiev, 
And I realise now, much more than I did at the time, that they were the front line of that struggle then, and they still are today. Andrew Miller there, ending our special episode on the outlook for Ukraine. And we'd love to know what you think are Ukraine and Russia on the path to peace or war, and what should the West do or not do? Write to us at podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. Our sister podcast, The Intelligence, spoke to NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg about why he thinks the treaty organisation has a renewed sense of purpose in this crisis. That's definitely worth a listen, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. To stay up to date with this and other stories shaping the world around us, do become a subscriber today. I guarantee great value. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. The sound engineer is Timo Seiler. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.